Welcome to the Recruiting Stories Podcast, where we celebrate recruiting by exploring the stories of leaders and top performers by digging into their stories and understanding how recruiting has impacted their journey and their success. All right, welcome back to the Recruiting Stories Podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Adrian Chapman, and today we have Deanne Turner with us. Deanne, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure, Adrian. It's great to be with you. Guys, I'm so excited to have Deanne on here because I was telling her offline earlier, she is one that I, I am so excited about and maybe more excited about than many people we've had on here. We've had Olympians, we've had NFL players, we've had CEOs and business owners. And uh, Deanne, uh, she's a former VP of talent with Chick-fil-A. I was there for, I believe, over 30 years. And then uh, she's also a best-selling author, um, writing a few books, and now does a variety of speaking and, and other things as well. So, um, Deanne, will you give us just a quick overview of some of the things that you've done and, and maybe what you're up to today? Sure. Well, I did spend 33 years at Chick-fil-A. And if you read my books, you find out one of the stories you find out is I ended up there a little bit accidentally. But boy, what a great opportunity I had. Thought I was going to be a writer from the age of eight and ended up in human resources, later named Talent at Chick-fil-A. And I led in that function for 30 years and had a marvelous career. Did everything from selecting Chick-fil-A franchisees to selecting the support center staff and uh, overseeing culture and engagement and talent acquisition and talent management and uh, staff learning and development, so many different things. And then in uh, 2015, I transitioned to launching and leading Chick-fil-A's enterprise social responsibility and sustainability function. I did that for three years. And in 2018, Chick-fil-A offered about 100 their staff members voluntary early retirement option. And I told you I wanted to be a writer. Well, it came full circle. I'd written my first book, It's My Pleasure, in 2015. And it had been successful. And I had been speaking a great deal on behalf of the company. And talking about some of those principles. And I had a contract on my desk to write two more, but I had come to the conclusion that I was not going to be able to write and promote books and continue in my role leading a function at Chick-fil-A. So it worked out great that I had this opportunity. I took it and I launched off into a speaking and writing career for the last five and a half years now that has just been total joy of a chapter two. I've been able to meet so many uh, wonderful clients and people all over the world. Um, actually, from New Zealand to Greece to um, everywhere. So I've had a great time, wrote Bet on Talent, How to Create a Remarkable Culture That Wins the Hearts of Customers. And that book taught uh, taught leaders how to find and keep extraordinary talent. And then after that, I followed it up with Crush Your Career, which teaches talent how to be extraordinary. So it's mm-hmm. the uh, two sides of the same coin. And uh, that has really takes me up to today and talking with you, Adrian. I don't know how many podcasts I've done, but it's been a bunch. Well, I feel honored that you would join our podcast as well. And I read Bet on Talent. It's it's unbelievable. We'll talk more about that uh, here in a little bit. And you have an incredible story. I think it was a great decision to jump out and, and begin writing. And, uh, you know, it looks like an amazing story. So let's look back to that and talk for just a second. One of the things that I always like to ask is a little bit about your recruiting story, right? Obviously, you've recruited tons of people in um, one of the most influential brands and companies in the world in Chick-fil-A. How'd you get there? How'd you start there? You mentioned wanting to write. So how, how did you? How did that whole story start? 
Well, I don't, they didn't recruit me as much as I begged them. <laughs> I was looking, it's a long story, but it was a geographical decision. I needed a job in the area where Chick-fil-A is located because where my husband was working. And so anyway, I, and then I learned more about the culture and, and I applied there. I was turned down two weeks later hmm. and my husband encouraged me to well, apply again. And so I applied again. I was turned down two weeks later and I was applying for a job in advertising because that's, excuse me, that's where I was at the time was working for an ad firm. And anyway, six months goes by, they have a job opening in advertising. I contact them about, they bring me in, I interview for months and I get to my final interview with the person who was then the uh, head of human resources. And I guess you could say he's the guy who recruited me because he saw something in me I didn't see in myself and said, I have a job in HR I think you'd be a good fit for. It's like, wait, what happened to advertising? Yeah. So I actually took the job with the intent that one day I would end up back in marketing and I stayed at Chick-fil-A for 33 years and that never happened. Um, but I really found that my calling was helping other people find their calling. And over time, I was able to use those journalism talents to do all kinds of things to tell the recruiting stories and such. And then it came full circle in the end. So I would say, you know, my own recruitment was more about me begging them to take me. And I was all of 21, so I didn't have a lot of experience. But I think the really key thing there was that one individual. And, you know, that really changed the whole trajectory of my career and ultimately my life because he recruited me to do that. Mm -hmm. Well, So I want to go back to that for a second, too, because I think that's important, too. I think so many times, uh, as, as big of an emphasis I put on the, you know, the recruiting that you do, as an organization or as a leader, right? I think it's a great responsibility. Mm-hmm. But that individual, you should be, as you wrote in your book, right? You're a big part of this process as well. What what was so interesting to you about Chick-fil-A at that time, before it was Chick-fil-A, that you said, I, I really want to work here, even if I'm going into HR? Absolutely. It was the, the culture and you could just experience it. And again, It was the intentional way that they recruited once you were there interviewing, you know, just little things. But the HR department was on the fifth floor right across from Truett Cathy's office. Mm -hmm. And it was intentional so that when candidates were sitting there waiting on their interviews, the company leaders would come by and introduce themselves. So from the get go, you were meeting the top people in the company, which was a little unusual, especially in those times. Culture was not a buzzword in 1985. And uh, Truett Cathy, the founder of Chick-fil-A, he was just a, he was way ahead in that regard. So it was definitely, and again, at the time, I didn't even, when I say culture, I didn't even know what all that meant. I just knew that they had an inspiring purpose that I could identify with. And people were really friendly and kind when I was there. Mm -hmm. And so you felt the culture before you realized this is what culture per se may be all about. Right. One of the quotes in your book that I had written down was in order to create strengthen and grow a remarkable culture, focus on every people decision, ensure that each selection matches your culture and organizational goals. And I loved that having recruited internally for companies and externally for organizations that your people are the most important piece of what you do as an organization. Because as an organization without people, it's this living and breathing thing, different perhaps than, you know, you got a car and maybe the chassis or the engine is the most important thing. You got a home, maybe it's the foundation that's the thing. But an organization, it's built by its people. So every uh, every person and selection matters there. So 
I love that. Yeah, and actually, you know, since even since I wrote the book, that's clarified in my mind even more because I talk about in Bet on Talent, you know, selecting, I'm sure you're going to go there, but selecting for character, competency, and chemistry. And when you talk about culture, when you think about it, the culture of an organization is made up of the sum total of the character of the people in the organization. And mm-hmm. so that's very important that you select talent whose character aligns with the culture of the organization. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And along with that, I assume that goes back to the values of the organization at the very beginning of like what are our values and do we embody those as a group of leaders? Because then we can have that character and make sure that character is kind of parlayed throughout the the organization. Well, exactly. I talk about culture being three things, a meaningful purpose, a challenging mission, and demonstrated core values. That is the culture. And so when you're recruiting and selecting your child from the very beginning of recruiting them, you're wanting to match up and make sure that they match with your purpose, mission, and values. Yeah, I love that as well. And so, you know, we run a recruiting firm in the transportation and logistics industries. And so one of the things that's shocking to me even today is, you know, sometimes we'll jump on and and one of the questions we ask if, you know, as we determine whether or not we're a good fit to recruit for an organization is, what's your mission and what's your mission statement? And so many groups don't have one or they don't know it. <laughs> so that's that's always a sign for us to either say, hey, we can help you with this or we may not be a good fit for you because that's just so important if an organization doesn't have that. It's going to be hard for uh, talent to say, yeah, that's we want to go work for that place if we don't know where we're going, right? Uh, right exactly. you got to have a place to go, a destination. Well, that brings up another point, actually, because talent today, because culture is such a big thing now, they're looking for three things. They're looking for remarkable culture. They're looking to be a part of something bigger than themselves. And they want to work for a leader that will invest in their them personally and professionally. So that's really, if you don't know what your mission is or your purpose, whatever you call it, you haven't defined your core values, you're going to have a hard time attracting top talent. That's good. I love that. A question just on that made me think, have those things changed that you just mentioned over the years? Or has that been a consistency in people and talent over the years? It's changed in terms of what culture is. I wasn't quite sure. Or, or, or what talent maybe wants. Or what right? they want. Has it changed over the years? I think it has. Uh, when I think back to my generation. I was at the very tail end of the baby boomers. Yeah. And I do think that's changing. We went back to the 1980s when I started my career. I think we were looking for long-term careers and stability. Mm-hmm. And that's not necessarily what you see today. One is it doesn't exist to the same level. It, it, I mean, if that even that's what people were looking for, they'd have a hard time finding it. And right. so I think that, I think it is different. And I think, you know, when I think about millennials and Gen Zs, they're knowing that they're not likely to spend a career at one place, but they're more likely to stay with you if those three imperatives are met. If yeah. they're working in a great culture, they have a great leader, and they feel like they're doing something that matters, they're yes. much more likely to stay with you longer. Yeah, yeah, I can I can attest to that just in the conversations that I've had over the past decade in recruiting that I've done. It's it's so often that you know, I'd say all the time that people people will take less money if I can work with someone who values me 
mm-hmm. and I'm doing something that matters. You can fulfill those, man. It's just, just like you said, I mean, my, my, the chances of us staying together and working together for a long, I mean, it goes, it goes through the roof. Yeah. Because of those things. I love that. And, you know, people weren't talking about culture in the 1980s. That's not what they were. They were talking about making money, whether yeah. it was the organization talking about making money or the individuals talking about making money. And just the fact that I've stay, stayed very gainfully employed for the last five and a half yeah. years, I can tell you that's the number one thing they're talking about now is culture. So it really has been a huge shift. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and Chick-fil-A is well known for their culture, right? I mean, we could all, I mean, I could pull anybody off the street and and they could say, yeah, something's different about Chick-fil-A. What advice would you give to maybe, you know, a, a business, there are 50 people or so, right? And they're like, we're trying to develop our culture. We're trying to set ourselves apart as we have a trajectory moving forward. So we are different. What advice might you give them on that process? Wow. It's great when you have 50 employees because it's so much easier to start with a remarkable culture than to try to transform an organization that's already gone down and out of a very good path. So I, you know, I enjoy when I have that opportunity to step in when somebody's first starting. And the first piece of advice is, I mean, obviously we're all here to serve. So you have to figure out this mindset towards serving whoever that customer is, whether it's a product or a service. um, Ultimately, if you're going to be successful, you've got to be really great at serving that person and then back up. Okay. So what, why do we exist? What's our purpose? Why are we even here? And start with that. Why as Simon Sinek would say, and once you've determined that, and you know, that that's not necessarily an overnight thing that takes a little time to develop, but Because you want it to be something that everyone can buy into, that everyone can remember. It's hard to live something out if you can't even remember what the purpose is. It'd be two pages long, right? Right. No, you want to to simplify it actually as much as you can. And then secondly, you want a meaningful, uh, excuse me, a challenging mission to work for. Meaningful purpose, a challenging mission. What's a goal that the whole organization can rally themselves around? They can say, this is what we're going to accomplish and we're going to measure it. And when we accomplish this mission, unlike our purpose, which really stays the same, when we accomplish this mission, we're going to set a new mission and we're going to have a new challenge because if you're going to select great talent to stay with you, they want to be challenged. They want goals to reach. They want to celebrate those goals. And then they want the next goal. Um, What do I do next? And then lastly, you want to define the behaviors or what I would say, the beliefs that you hold most dear and what those behaviors look like that represent that through your core values. And so that people know this is how this is how I achieve this mission. This is how I live out this purpose. This is what this looks like. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's well said. I love that. And it's just such an important topic in time. And I say that because in the world I live in, in the transportation industry, it's notorious for being a really high turnover industry, right? And part of that, there's lots of different reasons behind that. It's a hard industry. I do think it's a, you know, maybe an old school, quote unquote, industry. But, you know, I think that it's right for opportunity with the right leadership and the right culture, the right mindset. And just because it had been done a certain way in the past doesn't mean that it can't be done uh, well moving forward. So, I don't want to talk through, go back to your book, Bet on Talent, because to everybody listening, 
pick pick up a copy of Bet on Talent. I, I think it's just a great read, especially leaders, you know, as you are building and developing teams. There's so many great things. Kind of three themes as I'm reading through the book. There's this idea of, you know, talent acquisition, talent development, and talent deployment, right? That are in the book. Everybody wants to know how to find the great talent, right? So uh, I know in the book, you know, obviously they need to read the book, but talk to me a little bit about the both finding that talent and behavioral interviewing and why that's important. Well, finding the talent. So I I believe, number one, that you create the kind of culture that attracts that talent to you. So I think that's really important. I think the culture piece is what we talk about in Bet on Talent, the Bet on Talent formula. Well, the foundation is having a culture that will attract and keep the people once you you find them. It's kind of like in the restaurant business. The first thing you want to do is make sure you have great service before you start inviting everybody to come in because you want them to stay and come back and bring more people with you with them. Same is true in talent acquisition. You want to make sure you have the environment that once you recruit your talent, they're going to stay. You mentioned behavioral interviewing, and it's so important when you're interviewing that you're able to look at somebody's past performances as a predictor of their future performance. Yeah. And behavioral interviewing is a technique that allows you to do that. I teach a workshop on on interviewing, and, and I've seen all kinds of things from people who sit in the interviewer who actually reads the resume back to the candidate. Don't know if anybody's ever been in one of those kind of interviews. Or they go down and they machine gun questions for yes or no answers. Behavioral interviewing is a technique where you're asking for specific examples of what somebody's actually done. You know, I don't think situational interviews work so well because they've never been in that position. You're asking them what they would do if, well, they've never been that. Instead, ask them about something they've actually done and then allow them to tell you a story or give you a specific example of what they've done in the past. If you do this well, and it takes a little practice, but if you do this well, you know, in 15 minutes, you can have a lot of information to make a decision about a candidate, and you won't hate interviewing so much anymore either uh, when you learn the skill on how to do it. As a matter of fact, there is a tool on my website. I'm sure you can put this in the notes too. Uh, mm-hmm. Go to deanturner.com. You can download my top 25 behavioral interview questions. It has the question. It also has um, some hints about the types of answers you might be looking for and why. Uh, so I'll, I'll, I will uh, make sure that's in the show notes. I will also um, pump that as well. I've read through those and they're they're wonderful and very, very helpful. I love that on behavioral interviewing because I, I I couldn't agree more. Like so many times and and we've I've placed thousands of people in, in the past, you know, decade here. And for me, I, I can't express how true that is. If someone has a rhythm or a habit of success in their life or overcoming difficulty, it shows up in their work. And you can often uncover that throughout a behavioral interview. And and I couldn't agree more. A question, I guess this is more just my own curiosity, just having interviewing people for a living. Are you an advocate for for personality assessments of any sort? Or uh, do you not like them? Tell me about your thoughts on that. I'm actually not a huge advocate of them. And here's why. It's one thing if you have a trained professional using those, and it needs to be one, of course, that's validated for use in talent selection. But what happens in so many organizations is that you have untrained people involved in the interview process, and all of a sudden they're saying, you know, I need somebody that's this on the Berkman. I need 
this particular Myers-Briggs type indicator. I need this on the Strengths Finder. You know, whatever the newest, latest is. And by the way, they all sort of become the same thing. Uh, the disc, you know, I need this. And then they start looking for just that person. Yeah. And first of all, it's it's really not a recommended way to select talent at all. It can, and, and in some cases can, you know, put you at legal risk for doing so. And uh, I think that it it's just shortcutting a process of being very disciplined about good interviewing and referencing practices. And if you interview candidates and use a behavioral interviewing style and you spend the time with the candidate and don't just, you know, try to get through the interview and you go through a referencing process that you do the exact same thing with the references, you ask them very similar questions to what you ask the interviewee. If you do those two things, you're 90% there and you won't need those personality surveys to help you make a decision. I agree. I've seen them used well, but not often uh, in my own cases, because uh, like you said, so many times, at least in my experience, I'll see too many people have access and too many people end up having ideas or thoughts about it to where, like you said, they end up bypassing the interview process and focus solely on this one or two or three things over here that are a very small portion of the individual and their ability to or do or not do the job. So uh, I was curious. Always uh, enjoy learning there. What about talent development? I I love this too, because to me, you can get the best talent in the world through the door, right? But if you don't equip them well, like it's hard for them to succeed. So what would training look like to empower people well? I think that's a commitment that you make for as long as they work for you. So it never ends. And I think training and development are two different things. To me, training is this is what you need to do to be successful in this job. Development is about the whole person. And it's over time as long as somebody works with you. And so one of the things um, that I look back at Chick-fil-A and I say, they really got this right. Um, I don't know what they do today, but this was my experience when I worked there. Everybody in the organization, regardless of your role, you had a development plan and budget attached to it. And you were expected every year to fulfill that plan and to invest in your own learning through this budget. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's so important. I think with this generation, the other thing I really encourage all of my clients to do is establish a formal mentoring program. We already know that our younger generations in the workforce, and when I say younger, I'm talking, I mean, they're not so young anymore. It's anybody under 45. (laughs) Um, They're looking for more feedback than maybe previously. And so um, this is one way to help get that need for them. But what are organizations looking for? There's still, if there's a labor crisis, then there's a leadership crisis because who are you going to put into these roles? You have to be developing your leaders within. And one of the ways to do that is to have a formal mentoring program so that they have somebody investing in them from day one to be sure that they stay on track for their own personal and professional development. Yeah, I I love the idea of a mentor, a buddy, buddy system um, to say, hey, let's let's do this together. Or there's somebody above me to look up to. You never feel like you're alone in the process. I just think that's so important. And to your to your point, I, uh, one of my best friends always says, you know, hey, if I'm having trouble retaining talent, you're you're talent on yourself when it comes to your culture or your leadership. There's something there that you need to self reflect on. Oftentimes, it's not always not always about the individuals that you're bringing in or the, you know, whatever generation they are. It's often, hey, what are we doing that would not make them mm-hmm. stay or in our selection process, et cetera. So. 
I think that's uh, I think that's very helpful. And then talent deployment, actually saying, hey, let's deploy this talent, let's get them moving, let's make them effective in their work. I think as a uh, we were talking a little bit offline. I'm I'm a former college football player and, and coach, coached a little bit. You know, that was always a part of our process. We wanted to say, okay, we want to go find this great talent. We want to get these young guys trained here. Um, but now we got to put them on the field and hope that it works out. <laughs> so what what are some advice that you would give um, organizations and leaders uh, on the deployment side of things? Well, just as I talk about having that mentoring for the development side in the deployment, the one thing that people need that I don't think there's enough of is accountability and performance management. And I'm not talking about telling people what they do wrong, but the athletes are a great, great example of how this works. You know, you're given an assignment. If you blow your assignment, you're accountable to the whole team for that. And you have to get feedback about how to correct that. Or if you're making great contributions, if no one tells you, you don't know what you're doing well that's helping the team succeed either. So both of those are really, really important that there's a sense of um, once you, uh, you send that talent out on an assignment is that they're really clear on accountability and then they're getting regular performance feedback on how they're performing in their assignment. Yeah, that consistent feedback loop is so important. I use an example often from coaching and from my, my days as an athlete where I tell people like, I was filmed every single day of my practice and every game that I played in. And I had a grade that I showed up and I saw every day. And uh, while that might seem big brother or scary to some, that was really helpful for me because it helped me know, like you said, yes, you did a great job here. You were doing a poor job in this area. Maybe you're in the right location, but your effort was poor. You know, that feedback loop, I think is so important, you know, whether that's weekly or monthly, as long as there's an expectation set and it's communicated well. Well, and having that visual that you had of being able to see it and anything you can do to help somebody visualize it. And and just like you did on the football field, you I mean, within the next day, you're watching the film from the game. Yep. And so you're seeing uh, clearly what you did that quickly. And we need the same kind of feedback in our jobs. Don't wait till the six month or the annual, which some people do performance review. Oh, by the way, nine months ago, you did so and so. It's like, no, that coaching needs to happen on the spot so that can get corrected. And that's not even a discussion when you get to performance review. Yeah, you should be surprised. Never surprised. <laughs> that's good. Man, that's that's so good. Uh, that's very, very helpful. One of the things in the Bet on Talent book, too, that I, I it's a, it seemed like it was a theme, a phrase over and over was the idea of servant leadership. You had a chance to work directly with with Truett Cathy over the years. Tell me a little bit about maybe some of the things that you learned from him on servant leadership as it just grew and grew and grew. And you hired franchisee franchise, I guess, uh, leaders and, and things like that throughout the years. Well, it was something that was instilled uh, very early from the very beginning in uh, my career and everyone who comes to work there is that we're here to serve. And everybody in that organization is serving someone. There's team members that and, and their franchisees that are serving customers. And at the support center, we serve the franchisee so that they could do a better job doing that. We had a saying, if you're not serving chicken, you better be serving someone who is. And that's an important distinction. It was so important that, you know, one of the things we did was we worked in a restaurant 
mm-hmm. at least once a year, sometimes mm-hmm. more often than that, but at least once a year in a team member uniform doing mm-hmm. team member jobs so that we could understand what their everyday life was so that when we got that phone call at the support center at 505, right. we picked up the phone or we got that phone call for that matter over the weekend that we understood that this business didn't work unless those people were able to serve customers. So whatever our job was to help them do better, that came number one. So that was that was the first part. And then it was such with Truett and um, his family, it was what you observed. It was what you caught. You know, it wasn't just what was taught. It was what you caught. And mm-hmm. when I traveled with, you know, senior members of that organization and I watched them walk through the parking lot, picking up trash on the way to the restaurant, or Mm -hmm. I watched them, you know, swing by. They didn't, you know, team members are busy. They didn't walk over there and say, hey, can you come get this tray off the table? They cleaned it themselves. So that was, that was built into the culture. And in fact, early days, it was so funny because we had a break room that had beverages available. And so every time somebody goes to get a drink, they'll say, I'm going to get something to drink. Would you like something? I mean, you Mm -hmm. just... You didn't have that in the other place, you know, constantly somebody bringing you something to drink or here, let me take that trash away for you. I'm headed down to the break room or whatever. It was just part of the culture. Oh, man, I love that. I've heard that phrase that I may be butchering, but it's something like your culture is what you tolerate. And if from a leadership standpoint, like you see, this is what the CEO does. This is what the leadership does. And this is how we constantly respond. If you're anything less than that, somebody's going to bump you and say, Hey, that this is not it. This is what we do. This is who we are. And I just love hearing those stories because uh, so often, whether it be, you know, a football program or a small business or a large business, the best ones, it's that top down servant leadership that does things extremely well. And obviously um, you and, and Chick-fil-A have, have created uh, something really, really cool. So I love to hear that. that. That was one more thing I wanted to add about that. Yeah. That's a big part of it, too, is that the higher up you are in job title in the organization, the more you're expected to serve. Mm-hmm. And so you are you are the first to arrive and the last to leave. And you're the mm-hmm. last to eat, not the first. Yeah. Um, yeah, There are no reserved parking spaces for executives at Chick-fil-A, that kind of thing. I love that. It was a great example. Well, I want to be respectful of your time, Deanne. I've, I've loved talking with you. Typically, one of the things I asked at the end is, is just a couple questions is one, if you had to look back at kind of your 18, 20 year old self, what advice would you give yourself knowing what you know now? Well, I have to tell you, I love what I see in this next generation of workers. I love their balance, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it was fun working hard. And, you know, when I went to Chick-fil-A, we were 150 restaurants, 175 million in in revenues, a regional restaurant chain in the South. I mean, it was it was a little more than a startup. Mm-hmm. And so we had a lot of responsibility early and lots of opportunity and all that was fun. But if I could go back and do anything else, I probably would not take myself so seriously. <laughs> and I would probably find a little bit more balance in taking care of me and in working. <laughs> but yeah. I and I sit and again it comes to mind most because I watch my own sons do that in the way that they make time for everything and yeah. uh, they they work to live. They don't live to work. And I appreciate that a lot. That's good. That's good advice. Love that. 
What about books? Obviously, we have Deanna's several books you should pick up, but were there any books that were helpful for you on your journey that you would recommend uh, to someone navigating their career, whether they're young or whether they're in the midst of their career now? Yeah, there were a couple. And Henry Cloud is one of my favorites. And he wrote a book called Integrity. Mm -hmm. And what that really made me focus on, you know, sometimes I thought, well, I intended this, I intended that. And he really made me think about in that book, well, what you intend and its impact are not always the same thing. There's often a gap there. Mm -hmm. And understanding what that gap is helps leaders to really grow when you have that self-awareness. So uh, that was a powerful book for me in my career, and I highly recommend it. I highly recommend, and these are older books, but Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Successful. And my favorite was habit number five. Seek first to understand and then be understood. That one helped me a lot along the way of the importance of listening well, asking good questions, really trying to figure out where somebody's coming from before you try to make your point. Yeah. Uh, one that's been out in recent years since I retired, but still a couple of years old, that I recommend to every person starting out is Atomic Habits by James. Mm-hmm. I think it's yeah. one of the best books of my career. I love that book. And that's the book I wish I'd had at 21 that I figured out a little bit later, but wish I'd had it earlier in my career. Yeah, all of those are so good. I'll put all of those in the show notes. Um, I will echo uh, all of them. Atomic Habits for sure has been a game changer for me and both my personal life and and my business. You just learn that, you know, you can kind of what you want and what you value, you can create a habit to help you get there. And it's not maybe as complex or hard as as you believe it to be. So that's good. Well, Deanne, I, I've enjoyed it. If someone wanted to get in contact with you, uh, whether it's to, to speak or to get to know you, anything there, what would they do? You can connect with me through my website, deanneturner.com, D-E-E-A-N-N, turner.com. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn. And uh, and then also I have a Facebook author page at Deanne Turner Author, and then Instagram at Deanne Turner. There you go. Awesome. Well, thanks again for joining us. We appreciate it. Thanks, Deanne. Thank you, Adrian. Thanks for listening to the Recruiting Stories podcast. If you haven't yet, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Check us out on LinkedIn, Adrian Chapman, and Cover 3 Consulting is our company page. Also check out our website, www.cov3consulting.com. Again, thanks for joining us. And we just simply want to remind you that you can change the world by putting people in a position where they can do the most good. And you do that by recruiting. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next time.